Just Curious. Welcome to Just Curious Media. This is Into the Mystic, and I'm Jason Connell. So this is a very special episode of Into the Mystic. I am just doing an intro because this episode is a live workshop that we did at the Mystic Film Festival, and it took place, the festival was the whole weekend, but this workshop took place October 22nd, 2022. It was a Sunday, very memorable, from 12 p.m. to 2 p.m., and it was entitled Documentary and Podcasting Production 101 with Jason Connell and Alec Aston. So it was fantastic, live as I said. I'm going to show you a photo proving this. Here we go, over my shoulder. There's myself and Alec at a table. So our mics are side by side, so you're going to get bleed in from one and the other. And what you don't see here in this photo is on the other side of the room, we had people. Yes, we had an audience, and they were captivated. But it was fantastic. We went through documentary production from A to Z, and then around the halfway point, hour mark or so, we got into podcasting. Same thing, A to Z, how to do it, concept to distribution. And I wanted to make it really interactive and rather than people just sit and hold their questions for two hours or even at the halfway point when we pivoted topics. But instead, I encouraged them to ask these questions as we went. And we didn't have someone else running around like Phil Donahue with another microphone to get their questions just in a mic. So in post, I raised up the level so you could hear them. It's not the best audio in those moments, but we do then answer the question, make it part of the conversation. And so I think there's a lot there. So I cleaned up the best I could. Next time I'll have a roaming mic, but I did bump up the levels and I think it works. And I also think it's fascinating. I really want to expand on these workshops, either in podcast form or outside of, and we have some things going on with the Mystic Film Festival and the Mystic Film Institute, of which I'm going to be doing live workshops where we go even further than just discussions, but hands-on. So I love this educational component, and it's really exciting to see the Mystic Film Festival growing in this way. These workshops are fantastic. I did a different one last year, but uh, that was more just about my career. This was really talking people through it behind the curtain. How do you do these things? Alec was fantastic as well. I love Alec. He's such a great documentarian, producer, mentor to so many filmmakers in the mystic area. So this is just the intro. I do want to thank our sponsors as usual. Here we are. We have none other than the old Mystic Village, which just last year celebrated 50 years. If you're ever in Mystic, go to the old Mystic Village. It's incredible. And of course, we have the Mystic Aquarium, where we had our workshop and other workshops. One of the best aquariums in the United States. Check it out, please. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this documentary and podcasting production 101. You'll learn a lot. Maybe you'll have some of your own questions, and you can send them to us online at mysticfilmfestival.com or justcuriousmedia.com. Yes. Hello. <laughs> Thanks for coming out. This should be a lot of fun. More people might trickle in, whatever. We're happy you're here. This is super exciting. I am Jason Connell. And I'm Alec Aston. 
And this, no, we've never done this before. This is not a documentary 101, podcasting 101 that we do all the time. But I have a lot of experience in documentary production. I produced 10 award-winning documentaries, and then my whole career pivoted to podcasting pre-pandemic in 2019. And uh, I'm new to New England. I was in California, Los Angeles in particular for like 17 years. So my career was really there. So now it's here, and I have an affinity for film festivals gotten involved with the Mystic Film Festival. So we'll just kind of have a conversation. I got met Alec last year. We had a really good time at the festival. And we kind of, we break it up into two parts, I figure. And we really want to make it interactive as well. Conversation, ask questions. We'll probably talk about documentaries first and then segue into podcasting at the halfway mark. And uh, really just a lot of fun. So just to give you guys a, a better idea, we are actually record. The, you're not hearing us through these, I know. I'm actually just capturing it in my recorder this may become a podcast on Into the Mystic Podcast, which is a newer show that we launched just like a few months ago. So we'll see. This will be two hours. I'll have to edit it a lot. But so if you see us talking into these, we're really just trying to capture good audio. But I think you guys can hear us. It's not that big of a room. So Alec, anything? And, and feel free. Move up if you'd like. Yeah, if you want to move up. You want to you want to get up here? Just for a lot up. of chairs, just in case. But, you know. We, we love to kind of keep it more uh, intimate, yeah, more intimate. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. But if you want to stay where you're at, that's fine, too. So um, where do we begin, Alec? Do we start at the top? Documentary yeah, I, 101. Right. And yeah. it just starts with a story. It yeah. starts with a concept. You yes. know, there's something that you as a filmmaker inspires you to want to share the story with others. And whatever your craft, whatever your knowledge of the craft, you realize it's not necessarily a one-person band. <laughs> no. You need no. to collaborate with others. And you find that you, when you do that collaboration, you get a lot of inspiration through the talent of others that are on your team. And it just kind of that motivates you and just kind of pushes you forward with the project from where it is. But Yeah, that's true. So my inspiration, I moved to Los Angeles in 2004 to make fiction movies, not to narratives, nothing to do with documentaries. And I stumbled onto an idea. I was, uh, knew no one in California, literally. And I was an extra on my favorite show at the time, which was Six Feet Under, HBO show, had a good run. And I was in a scene. They put me in a season four finale and I'm like, oh my, it's so surreal. I'm from Oklahoma, Tulsa, Oklahoma. I'm like, now I'm in my favorite show that I watch with my family. And it was really just so meta because I was in the scene and then I came home and six months later the show comes out and my family's like, we just saw you on Six Feet Under. What is going on? And I was like, this, is, this experience just kind of, like I met other people that were extras and then they were like, we've been doing this since the 70s. I was like, I got to make a documentary about this. So literally, I'd had this idea. I was like, I can raise this much money for a doc, and it could look great, or I could try to raise more money and maybe do some sort of fiction. So I chose the documentary route, and that was the genesis for this movie, which is right here, which we'll show you the trailer. How about that? That gives you some sort of idea of what the heck it was. But before that, I will show you the poster. And I like this interactivity here. So it became strictly background. I chose to follow 10 movie extras in Hollywood for a year to tell their story. Now, and I'm, we'll just do a few of these jumping off points. I did 10. We're just going to probably highlight three and just how you, everything from A to Z in doing it. But we can, before I show the trailer. Do you and you know what? And, and I think I want to add this on there yeah. too, because the next, the next point is access. Mm -hmm. So you get an idea, you have a concept, you want to tell the story. Yep. Then the reality sets in. 
how are you able to get to the people that you want to do the interviews with and everything? That's true. So, yeah. So, I mean, I had ideas. These were older movie extras. I mean, older, but more mature. They weren't like fresh faces off the bus. I, I actually had that in mind and I whittled it down. But I had ideas of getting like famous people who had been extras that then parlayed that into a career. Well, that, that was no access, Alec. <laughs> like I was like, oh yeah, you cannot get to Brad Pitt. And uh, you know, I had these ideas. You have crazy ideas and it's like, okay, no, what can you control? What can I tell? And I only have so long to tell this story. Your, your budget dictates a lot of that, how much time you have. And so anyway, I'll play the trailer and then we can kind of delve into that. Here we go. So I hope this sounds good. Happened to be uh, looking for a job in the LA Times Classified, and I saw this little ad saying that, uh, you know, do you want to be in a movie? Being an extra and being in the film industry is a dream for so many people, and that's what they do. I mean, sometimes people will ask me, what do you do for a living? And I tell them, and they go, wow, you mean that's a job? You actually get paid to do that? People don't realize that uh, extras really are important to a movie. One actor once told me, and other people on the set. If without you background people, there would be seven of us actors standing around with a finger up our ass, which is true. One thing, when you're a background extra, the key is to try to get into the camera as close as you can. It's like a mission. Oh, I was, here's why I was in this. I played a NASA scientist in, in Space Cowboys. I was told I'm playing one of two drunks, and I'm hoping for drunk number two. Drunk number two! Hey! Hey, drunk number two! My next door neighbors used to think I was a hooker because I'd always be leaving the house at some different time in some different outfit. And those are the days I like, when I can be in a, a police uniform, or I can be in a race car uniform, or I can do something I'm, I wouldn't do otherwise. In Charlie's Angels Full Throttle, I was a drunk Mongolian. You know, how many times am I gonna carouse around with, you know, 90 other drunk Mongolians? Okay, can I tell you a story real quick? I became really good friends with Richard Dreyfuss on the shoot. I think I was always destined to be in the movies. I'm in just about every kind of film imaginable. When I see myself on film, I get very excited. Because you never know when you're going to be the next star in Hollywood. Get one of these things down here on the sidewalk. I make it first. Of course, I'm gonna help him, and I know he better. If he makes it first, he's gonna help me. You know. What can I say? Go ahead, say something. Let's just watch the movie. Let's just. I haven't seen. I haven't seen it in so long. I love that. So that was the end product, the trailer. But it gives you a sense. But go ahead and chime in. I have a lot to say, of course. Yeah, no, no, I, I think, well, I mean, and we'll talk about later about, you know, marketing and everything, you know, when you're putting a trailer together and how important that is. But I, I think to set it off, we just thought this would be a good piece to show as like, all right, concept. 
Yeah. And then access. How much can you get to? So maybe I guess yeah. tell us a little bit about that, about your with this film in particular. Yeah. And how did you corral or how did you even decide who you were going to use? That was tough. So this is my first one. So that's kind of why it's like such a, you know, a touchstone for me is the first one and I didn't know a lot I'd come from making short films all narrative so I had to learn really the style I wanted to tell like yeah I'm gonna make a doc that sounds great but how are you gonna do it so I had watched other great docs at the time this is like 90s early 2000s so then I knew like uh, there was a movie called Oh, what was it? Wordplay. There was uh, the spelling bee doc that was in insightful. So I started talking to filmmakers and like, hey, you know, we actually filmed 10 or 12 people. We only kept five. So I was like, OK, so I have the leeway of choosing a cast and still whittling it down more in post. So that gave me some freedom. So I actually recorded interviews with like 13 extras went down to 10 in the end, but they were great because, I mean, these are wannabe big actors, so they're accessible. <laughs> I had them yeah. where I wanted them. Like, hey, can we follow you to go the world, the world? Okay, yeah, sure. But I did have a problem was the minute they went to work on a film set, the camera, that's where I, my barrier stopped. I could not cross over that line. No film crew was letting me in to show them working. So I was like, okay, that's going to be tough. How do I? So then we got into the idea of showing movie clips, if you saw, and we rotoscoped. It took forever and rotoscoped out everything and made the, them pop in the color. That Pleasantville you know, experience, the effect, if you will. And that was really effective because that shows them working and how important they are and integral they are to a movie, right? Maybe some of them are a little delusional, I know. Mark's hilarious, but he wants to be a star. But that was helpful for me. And then what I started doing is running ads on Craigslist, which was really hot at the time. And like, hey, they're doing a movie. I would email them and say, I have some extras for your film that you're looking for extras. If you want some of them, let me come film them. And they greenlit me to do that. So that was how I got on some indie sets, which kind of I interstitched through the movie. And so access became a lot easier. And that's a great point. I think I want to I want to bring up is that, I mean, here you know, as you're making a film, I mean, of course, you guys know you stumble block after stumble block, mm. obstacle after obstacle, and you got to always be creative with how do I get around that. So I think that was actually a beautiful way of doing it. Yeah. Of like now presenting the people that you've already met to a film set and saying, I can come with a package. Yep. Yeah. You know, and um, and they were game. It wasn't like I was exploiting them. They yeah. wanted more screen time. Here are people that want to speak and be in the camera. This movie became an opportunity for them. I had this crazy idea that they would all pop. Some of them did. I'll, I'll save that for later. Others, yeah, they're not even in the business anymore. But that's life. That's why you cover ten because mm -hmm. some could fade away. Mm -hmm. um, so that was covers those points. Uh, I mean, budget always comes up. How much did you have? Never enough, honestly. This is my first movie. I wasn't even sure I could tackle a feature. So it was a little bit of money that I had raised, just a little bit off of a short film that I you know, showed some family members. And they said, okay, we're in $10,000. That was like, to me, it was $100,000. And I bought the equipment. I figured lockdown, all I need, I can always build a team. And the team was really just on favors to be a part of a great project, I convinced them it would be a great project. And we'll finish it, and we'll get into festivals, and that's the best I could do, and I lived up to that at least. But And I think that's a big it thing. It was a small crew, by the way. Is, is we all go through that, right? Is no matter what project it is, yeah. they become a lot of like favor savers. 
yeah. you know, is, is you've got to, you know, pull your cards to get something done and yeah. rely on those relationships with people that you already know and trust you, you know, to move you forward or make an introduction or anything. But, and I want to talk about one thing you were talking about before you get into the budget thing, yeah. because I think once you write, once you kind of have your concept down, you understand, you start making a list of who you want to interview, how can you get access mm-hmm. to them? Uh, any B-roll footage, how can you kind of manipulate that and, and what needs to be done. But that step now is when you talk about the budget, it's what is the equipment that you're going to use? Is it something that you feel you can do with a cell phone? Is it something that you feel you've got to bring in camera, per, a professional camera person? You know, you're, you want to rent a camera, you know, that's going to be, you know, 3000 or so a day, you know, what's the level you want to go? So that's part of it is, is mm-hmm. I guess building your strategy first yeah. of the vision that you have to understand what's this budget? How do I put this budget together? Yeah. Because it's not like documentaries are so different. You know, it, it relies so much on, yes, you may have one set of interviews, but you realize you may have to go out and get some more. You need more material. Because the, the biggest problem is you have no idea what somebody's gonna say. You know, you have your talking points during an interview, but to guide them into the direction that you know, okay, this, this is something I can use. This yeah. Is, do you want to talk about that? Well, about well and just to piggyback on something quickly, though, not to mention with a documentary like this with 10 different people, you never know when someone's available. And I needed to own the equipment to say, this isn't a conventional budget, our schedule. It was just like, I think Terry's doing something next Tuesday. So having owning a camera, owning the boom mics, and knowing I could operate one of, if not both things, but I had a DP later, which was helpful. I mean, really, in the beginning, but he wasn't always available. I knew I would need that for the random like hey by the way I'm, I'm going to set tomorrow okay that'd be a good scene let's go do it so there's a lot of that in docs because I know other movies you've got to have it you know laid out yeah. I got better at it but this is my first one and it was just so run and gun which isn't a bad thing actually you know? I think it's almost kind of essential because you right and when you're doing things that guerrilla style yeah you're learning so much and the truth is we're gonna get to this more but the truth is Editing is such a big part of filmmaking and never so more than a documentary because oh, well, yeah. it's you not till you really see what you have. Do you know how you can tell the story to go further? But yeah, I don't want, I don't want to go further into, you know, we can even take questions along the way. We don't have to backload them. So we want to make it more interactive so we could take anything pops up, raise your hand and we'll, we'll bring you into this conversation. But what I'd like to ask is let's just address questions in what we're talking about. I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of questions. Oh yeah. Yeah. Please. So, so as far as we've just talked about, about concept access, you know, even equipment, any questions or anything? No, we're good. I have a question about just finding concept. And so when you think about that, is it something that, you know, that comes from your heart that you're passionate about? Or are you thinking about, What's marketable in the end? What do people want to know? Like, how do you, how do you even get mm. the Well, I can only speak for me, and I don't have all the answers. I can just tell you how my journey, and I definitely have to love it, be passionate about it, because I can't, I know me, I can't fake it. And these, like this movie, there's three years of your life. So do you love it? You know, and I, no one was paying me to not be you know, like, oh, no, I kind of love it, but I'm getting paid. That didn't even come into play. So, yeah, I also wanted it to be marketable and do well. If there was 17 movies about it, extras, I probably wouldn't have been as passionate. So it's a balance. But I, I fell in love with the concept. 
it researched, there hadn't been one done. And even if there was, if it was executed just poorly, I, you know, like Ricky Gervais show extras came out, like when the movie was coming out to festivals, which really helped our recognition. Like we won a lot of awards, got a lot of recognition, but Gervais actually saw the movie and gave us like a, a tag. So that was a good thing. But I may have been scared off had a Gervais show already been out on the market, you know, extras, and I may, I may have been scared off. But really, it's a balance. And I try to trust my instincts. I mean, other movies, we even had, well, you can kind of, it's bleeding on the screen here, the one to the left, which I'll save. But we knew, like, this is a really big topic. Let's do this. And we were passionate about it. So that's me. I don't know how you've been with your projects, if you want to speak to no, that. No, I, I, I think I can just speak for a, a lot of filmmakers and is passion has to be the top of the list because even when you're getting paid if the money runs out <laughs> you start feeling like what am i doing when? i've been wasting my a year working on this and right. i just know so many projects from friends and even things i've done myself learning that lesson that if i wasn't 100 percent interested and i wanted to tell this story yeah. it just would fall apart you know so i'd say the important thing is to find a subject matter that is like you believe in it yeah. you want to tell the story yeah and that will get you through any hurdle. everything you're the you an, know? An evangelist for the story i i totally agree so because because in the end the one thing i was going to say is you've got to if you love this story you've got to sell this story to everybody yeah you know it's only you so you whether you're finding a, a co-producer whether you're finding a, yeah. a, a co-creator you're selling it to them so that's why you just got to find something that drives you um, yeah as far as the releases yeah you You could. I did it real basic. I did a very standard release. And so they just kind of signed it away and trusted me, right? Now, that, I did that at the casting call. I recorded the entire casting process, which is be kind of fun to go look at that footage now, years yeah, later. Right, right. But so these 10, when I finally picked them, I let them know, but they didn't sign anything new. It was pretty standard. When you do a documentary and like this and you become close to your subject matters, there's a relationship that is spawned from that. And I felt like, you know, connected to them and a responsibility to them and just, they trusted me and I wasn't there to exploit them. We had a huge premiere at the Raleigh Studios, which was across the street from the Paramount lot in LA. And I had a limo pick them all up. I wanted them to be like the night of nights. So they got their experience. But to answer your question, no, it wasn't anything special. It was a very standard release. And I'm just going to add on to it, though. I, th I think it is very important to have a release. Oh, you need and, it. And, you know, to you make sure it. that you do have, you know, their permission. But here's, here's the issue. With a documentary, just what Jason's saying is there has to be such a respect because yeah. it, on your part, for them, for that person, because whoever you're inter you're interviewing, you know, you're getting their story, and probably it's something very personal to them. And you're right for them to mm -hmm. you see it every day now in the news that somebody gets exploited or something gets turned around and, and used against them. Yeah, you know. So I think the biggest thing is it's almost better to take the time to get to know the person if you don't know them, so they feel comfortable with right. you. You know, and that way they understand you're, and for them, they want to know if you're involved with this project, you're starting this, this film, you're going to finish it. Yeah. You know, otherwise they'd rather give their story to somebody else, you know, they know we'll finish it. So it, I think, yeah. It, it, again, as everything else in life, it's about relationships, right? So it's important, but, but have the release. So you have 
something of merit if something goes wrong or and if there is a it just protects both sides it's good to have now i wasn't asking for their life rights that wasn't this documentary we did have a documentary that dealt with life rights and we were asking them after the doc blew up and that can become an issue and was an issue and kind of helped maybe derail it from becoming a narrative i'll save that it's the third movie that we'll talk about or the second movie we'll talk about but uh yeah great question so we can go back on our roadmap if we uh our little hit list of things um editing though is key it literally took us 13 months to edit to find the story because i i was like "I, i have this in mind i have that in mind a doc you don't really know you know, you have an idea, but you don't know where the story's going sometimes. Like, I didn't know that certain things were going to emerge, and I was open to, like, yeah, following that, you know, path and then coming over here. But I was really in editing trying to whittle it down because you can fall in love with every scene you ever had. Like, it's 120 minutes, and I love this movie. But then you watch it, you're like, oh, my gosh, no. You got to take out the air. You got to take out things you love. We started, like, saying, okay, that's a DVD extra no pun intended, and, and taking things out of the movie, knowing like I just had to remove them to make it just more fluid, you know? Yeah, and, and the one thing I wanna say is, is in going, I'm gonna take a little step back because part of it is in the scheduling of it too, is yeah. like, and that's the, it's kind of like the adventure of what a documentary is all about, is you don't know, you just don't know. It's not like a narrative where you have a script to lead you no. on the path and everyone, sees the script and everyone agrees to the script so you like all have a mission going forward when you're doing the documentary you know you have a concept of the story that you want to tell you meet with somebody do an interview and as you're talking to them you may find that they produce a gold nugget of information that you didn't even know that all of a sudden can send you down a different path yeah now the beauty of a documentary is as you're having the interview with them record everything go down that little rabbit hole i shouldn't use that term but go down that direction that may because there may you may find when you interview somebody else to the story there may be some other tangent that you can use to create a sub story from the main story and it may even turn the documentary into a different direction Mm -hmm. than you had originally thought so capturing the freedmans yeah so the cool (laughs) thing is right you gotta like you gotta be willing to bend like a tree in the wind you know is that information will come and it will flow and and as you're listening or you're interviewing somebody the most important thing is for you to be listening to everything they say because i see a lot of people that start off doing interviews and everything and they're just looking at the paper going all right and uh yeah so how did you feel when you ate that muffin you know it's like stop Take the time to have a conversation when you do that interview. You know, you want to be able to, because what it will do, and again, this comes back down to the respect, is what makes some of these stories really good is when you can bring somebody's true emotion to it, especially if it's an interview or it's a storyline that really has something, some benefits that you want to, you know, um, just encourage somebody or inspire an audience member, you know, with the story you're trying to tell, is the truth in the interview cannot be beat. Because it's that person on camera saying what they're saying. There's no going back. And that's what goes back to that respect factor. Is as you are talking and listening. So the scheduling thing that I want to get to is you may find that, again, as you're doing this interview, it leads to another piece. And you go and you have to get another interview going. And that's why documentaries can span. How long since you started the piece that we saw? How, how long did it take from concept 
to mm. completion. I think I said three years is what I consider it from the idea. You know, I was very naive. I thought, well, I've done short films for a long time. I'll bang this thing out in six months. I did not know <laughs> that it would take 13 solid months to edit. It was my full-time job. And you have to get, and there's a point where you're like, I can't even look at this anymore. I would, and I do a lot of impressions. So I'm not going to do them now on the spot, but I started emulating everybody because you listen to their footage and see it so much. And you just like, I'm just too desensitized to this movie now. And I had to do something. I'm not, I'm real private and I have my editor and we're working together and we're co-editing. I open it up and, and, started to talk to people in the industry that I knew that I trusted filmmakers, some Oscar nominated filmmakers, some other people asking for advice to look at a cut. Cause I had kind of hit a wall. Like I don't even know if I'm making good decisions now. And, uh, and I took a month off, got some feedback, did like some test screenings, but not like test, real targeted test screenings. And then it kind of helped like, yes, I knew I had a hunch to kind of trim more, do more. It was helpful. It was helpful to let it like 10 people in then dive back into editing and finish the movie. Um, but my team was ready to end it like six months prior before I was. I kept, you're like an archaeologist. Like, we well, just got to keep going a little further, uncover a little bit more. You know, what's the essence of this? And you just start to see, like, you know, you watch the movie a thousand times. Like, it's, you know, you almost have like a, you're just kind of watching the flow of it. How do I feel? How would the audience, I always think about the audience, not just myself. Like, what, what's an audience doing here? Are they bored now? Are they tapped out? So I'm always hyper aware of, of the emotion that they're on. So in the end, we have a really tight, I think, great movie. And the movie didn't make me rich, but it did put me on the map, gave me access to other things. But I had people like John Landis, famous director, see it and give me glowing review. Like, that's it. I've made it. That's all I needed was a, a legend in my book to see it. Uh, Steve James, who directed Hoop Dreams, loved it. I met him at a screening. So that was just like, okay, you're on the right path. Keep going. So that, this was this, you know, it's always the one I go to because had I failed here, I may not made nine more, and I may not have pivoted to podcasting. I may have just gone home to Oklahoma and called it a career. Good thing you didn't. So I didn't, and, uh, and I wouldn't be here in Mystic. But, um, so that's that one. And, and this leads into this whole passion thing that we kind of just first addressed, is that you've got to have the steam and the energy to keep carrying yeah. through. You know, um, when you're in the editing process and everything, yeah, it's kind of that's the time where you've got to take a break and step out and invite... Um, my biggest suggestion, do not invite friends or family to see it. Because all they're going to say is, oh, that's wonderful. That looks great. Yeah. You don't want that. Well, that's true. You want somebody that, to that's bash true. it. You know, unless you to, need that. Unless you need that at that point in time. Yeah, unless and you need then, a pick yeah, okay. okay. But we had, a, I, we had a film group together. And we used to have a thing we called, like, uh, I remember when I was a kid, it was um, show and tell, right? Yeah. Well, we used to call this screen and bash. And so we would have somebody show a rough cut of the film and the other filmmakers would just, I don't get this. And what I liked about it was they would question the filmmaker. Why did you do this? And if the filmmaker, and I said, do not defend it. That's not your, your sponsor now it should be more of like absorb what they're saying, because if they're asking you a question, they just didn't get it. So maybe there might be a better way for you to tell the story so that your idea is understood. You know, so um, so the test screenings are good. But I think, again, it might be better to know a friend to ask them for, hey, do you have anybody else you might come over and get coffee and, and donuts or something and do the screening? Yeah. But have the Intimate. talk. Yeah. And then the best thing to do is honestly, because I do all the time is when I'm with them, I'll ask them, do you mind if I record this? 
and usually everyone's fine with it, but at least then I can retain what they're saying, what they said, so I don't forget it if I'm, because I'm a bad note taker. But, yeah. but that's something that's helped me in just allowing them to get a release. Before well, <laughs> well, this is for the people that are viewing the film. I'm it's just, just a common like, conversation. Like, do you I'm mind if I record that? And everyone's really okay with it. But, but yeah, I, I think, um, you know, getting that test. Questions about this, about yeah, the editing we process? Pivot, yeah. the Anything. And it's okay if we don't. We'll keep going. All right. So before I pivot to the next film, because there'll be three I think we'll cover. What was big to me as well, we're an independent movie, or this is when I was making independent movies, and you want to stand out. You don't want to look independent. You don't want the production value to look independent. You know, I don't mean that bad. I just mean like, oh, like, oh yeah, would you spend a dollar on this? So I always got the great cameras, made it look as good as it can be, and posters were really big to me too. Like the website, so I was like totally involved. This is the next movie we'll talk about, Holy Rollers, the true story of card-counting Christians, which is fascinating. But even the Strictly Background poster, like that to me was what people see at film festivals. Like, wow. So anyway, I'll play this trailer to give some more interactivity here. So this is the, another movie. It kind of came right after my co-editor and cinematographer from Strictly Background jumped into this project. So I Switch Roles became the producer because he knew this team. And this fascinated me when he pitched it to me one day and I gave him the title. I, titles just kind of, like, for me anyway, they come to me and I was like, we got to call this movie Holy Rollers. And then the true story of card counting Christians. It's really about the largest card counting team in the country. They were at it for like over a decade and they took millions from casinos this is like mit but the christian version of the card counting team and they gave us total access access for like four years now the caveat was they were making so much money that they said you can film us but this documentary may never come out because we don't want to be outed so we knew that going in like this might just be on pause well Luckily for us, things happened and the team disbanded and we were able to finish and release the movie. So and that's why? The team no, no, it had nothing to do with us. We were just following the ride and it ended. So that allowed us to finally come out. And this movie was a big hit in 2012 for us. It was one of the big Netflix docs at the time that they, big licenses. So great stuff. But here's a trailer to give you some insight. I was really excited when I heard about a blackjack team of all Christians. I was like, that's ridiculous. It doesn't seem like one of the most noble things a person could do in the world, but at least we can liberate the money from the clutches of those who would use it for ill purposes. <laughs> I mean, that's a start. far in the left field to think that someone would be a professional blackjack player, let alone have a whole team. And the fact that everyone we knew was in ministry of some sort was just awesome. I knew that there were good godly people who cared about Jesus and cared about integrity and cared about me. That's one of the main reasons that I joined. Every time that I'd go into a casino, I would pray like, God, bless me, you know. <laughs> Those two things going together never gets old. <laughs> going to baptize someone and then go gamble. Poetic justice. When we walk in a casino, pretty much everyone stops and watches us play. We're dealing with betting hands and winning and losing hundreds of thousands of dollars. I love it that there's $111,000 in here and a bunch of sand. Every once in a while you'll get people that are taking extra pride in their job at finding out that you're a card counter. Yeah, he's gonna get backed off tonight. I've seen enough. They'll threaten to backroom you. They'll try to intimidate you. Every other casino, they're gonna try to find you. They're gonna get you too. It's the nature of our business. We got the money. 
If you got the money, somebody's going to try to take them. I think they've been the most creative team. The changing of appearance and the extra effort as far as the kind of theatrics, I think that's a Ben exclusive trait, so. So I love the idea of the camouflage and, you know, kind of how you were doing something that seemed wrong. Blackjack makes people reassess what Christianity is, and in a good way. We want to live in the gray, because in the gray you've got to question who you are and what you're doing. Anyone who seriously wants to be a disciple of Jesus should learn blackjack. God knows all of my needs, and he knows exactly what order the cards are in the shoe. Yeah. So just yeah. show of hands, how many people want to see this film? Right? It's on iTunes or Apple and uh, Amazon. So I think going back to what we've talked about before, yeah. talking about a concept. Yeah. I mean, when he first told me about the concept, I was like, uh, as you probably all were, what? Yeah. Like this really exists? So, you know, and, and I'd like you to kind of even go through some of the process. If you oh, yeah, yeah. So we're just kind of, yeah. Please. So you've got a film, great. Yep. Um, Doug Festival was great. How do you then move on to getting into the screening and getting picked up by something larger? Yeah, yeah, we can, we can answer that. So um, the first so, film. So I think maybe it starts with, the, yeah, well, yeah, how did the first film. Well, the first film, was a, it was a different time. DVDs were going out. So my, I did land a distributor with Strictly Background, but it was like a DVD distributor. And Hollywood Video was still really big. And that was, I, I, remember I was so excited. The movie was on all these DVDs, but streaming wasn't really there yet. A year later it was, the DVD industry <laughs> plummeted and Strictly got like a small license deal, popped up on Netflix. And I was happy because it's like, you know, it's like street cred. Hey, my movie's on Netflix. And this is like, you know, a long time ago, 2010. By the time we made this movie, Netflix was starting to license more movies. They weren't making things just yet. It's pre-House of Cards, before they're making their own content, for the most part. And this got a lot of publicity. I mean, this is a subject matter. We won a lot of, of festivals. It was very controversial. We nearly became, this nearly became a big Hollywood movie. We had... Seth Gordon, who did huge movies from King of Kong, a documentary to Four Christmases, Baywatch, he directed. It's a big director, had him on board. They pitched this at all the studios. They considered it too Christian, and it was a pass. And I was like, ah, oh, I thought this was gonna be the first big you know, launch I had from doc to fiction. But it still got a lot of publicity. Netflix came to us, and we secured like a three-year license deal and couldn't do anything for those three years. And they really highlighted it, put it up there. But after three years, they're done with you. Like then you move over to Amazon or something. So that's how that one came about. The festival circuit, word of mouth, the near Hollywood thing, a movie that didn't happen, and then Netflix. So each movie has its own story, but that one is how that took place. So to answer, and getting back to what your question is, it really is all about relationships, getting back to that. You know, so to prepare for that, if you already understand what your story is, big thing is try to get publicity for it. Yeah. Can you get a, a story in the local newspaper? Can you get a magazine to do something for you so that people know about it and they talk about it? Yeah. And that's kind of the key is like, as the filmmaker, you're already got to start thinking about your exhibition. You know, when you're in concept. So, is it something you can be doing? A, a we'll talk about this later. I think more in detail, or if you want. To well, I agree. Or something, but just having a good poster meant a lot to me. I built the whole website. It was real interactive. 
I wanted to stand out from the pack. I wanted to go to film festivals and people were like, hey, we played this thing in Alabama at a festival. It was a heated debate over Christianity versus it was so I thought this was all good. NPR did a, we were on This American Life, or they did a whole special on the, like they put it in there. Uh, Stephen Colbert did a reference. So we were very fortunate, back to your concept versus marketability, this had both. And that doesn't always happen. I had the passion, I had the team, I was ready to go, my director was hungry. He knew, he grew up with the one guy who started this thing. That's how we got our access. They weren't letting anybody just come in and film. It was because of a relationship. And they said, we trust you based on, and they want to know what you've done. So they went and all watched Strictly Background. They said, okay, you guys are very you know, accomplished filmmakers, so we trust you. Did they want you to be Well, the, uh, my director was. More progressive, I would say. So, you know, but I, I was the one like, just kind of like watching, observing from the background, thinking, this is too good to be true. Like they were saying things like, um, just to kind of speak to the movie, if I was on the team and I said, Alex, a good guy, come on. And this is how the team, when they got too big too fast. It's like Enron. Like once a team got beyond like eight, it was like 80. And like, hey, I trust you. You're Christian, right? Come on in. And then you get, they teach you how to count cards and they literally would give you 80 grand and say, go, go play, log your hours. Okay, just log your hours. And then you'll get, and then give the money, but whatever happens with the money, you make money and then you get paid an hourly wage. So you really detach from the money. Here I am, like skeptical, like, you're just logging hours and just taking the money. I had this suspicion that people were cheating because I thought this is like, and in the end, most were, and they admitted it years later because it was just too much to take. Like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm working hard at 10 grand. And so uh, that was happening. That's how the team finally <laughs> disbanded. See the movie, though. See the movie for sure. But that's just to speak to, you know, behind the curtain of something, if yeah. you will. Oh, please. Well, we did have a hidden cam going there, but uh, yeah, there are some legalities that we had to work through. Yeah. And we actually, we got a little, we were a little more uh, confident at this point in time. We were sending in, we went to do an expose on a few of these casinos. They weren't the big casinos in Vegas. They were the smaller casinos across the country. And we would be like, can we do, come in and do a special on card counters and talk to you guys? And we would. And then while we're talking to them, send in one of our own, unbeknownst to them, and see if they spot that person so we can get that interactiveness. And they let us use that footage. So we had to kind of, you know, be clever. But, but they, the, the good point is what you're saying is they didn't know no. that your guy, and so were you able to actually catch them in the act where they saw? Yeah, they the even person? says it in the trailer. So that, so we're going to back that guy that off. He's an advantage player. Yeah, yeah. They call it advantage. It's not illegal, by the way. It's not an illegal thing. And, and I want to uh, point this out because yeah. I think this is part of it. It's like, you know, when you see reality shows, you know, they're not reality. There are a lot of scripted yeah. material because they, they have to yeah, we develop, had to develop a product. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. sometimes, depending on what your documentary is, you as the creator may have to think that way. How yeah. do I need, if I need to get the idea across, I may have to yeah. create it myself. We had to manipulate it some, but we weren't telling yeah. them what to say. And it's a scenario that was happening all the time. So we, we, we figured that was... Justified. Does it kind of depend on your topic how much uh, legal support you showed up at the beginning well, I like to stay out of legal problems. So, yeah, I, I, so even like in the movie before, we had 50 movie clips in the final version of the movie. But we went and got an attorney, an entertainment lawyer, and really 
followed the Fair Use Act to a T. And I don't know if you guys know about the Fair Use Act. People are always like, well, you can play like five seconds or something? No, it's not, it's not five seconds. It's more about you can use these clips as a documentary if it helps tell your story and you're not just stealing the, the heart of a movie. So they were all justified because we were pulling these little clips with our extras in it just to show proof. And we were fine. So le legal there was fine. In this movie, we had seven movie clips in the final version. Like in Hangover, they're making references to counting cards. And Warner Brothers actually distributed this movie um, along with Netflix. And they said, uh, you got to buy the clips or take them out. And we didn't have the legal leg to stand on. They were, not, they were ignoring the Fair Use Act. Like, you got to pay for them. Warner Brothers doesn't want to deal with that. So we just took them out because they weren't essential to this story. But as far as other legalities, I mean, have an entertainment lawyer for sure. If not before, after, you know what you have. Yeah, we knew we were a little dicey there with the hidden camera, but we had the relationship with the casino and they knew that before we went out with the movie. It didn't, you know, sometimes ask for forgiveness uh, as a documentarian and not, uh, can we come in and do this? Because they're happy to say no. Yeah. I'm sure you know this oh, yeah. <laughs> from experience. Oh, yeah. I, I think every filmmaker. Oh, yeah. Um, with a situation like that where it's slightly higher risk, did y'all go into post like getting E&O insurance or were you kind of like, well, let's wait and see what the distributors want? Yeah, they always wanted it. Yeah. I always got it at, at some point in time. And most of them, they just want it. Like, do you have, where's that at? Oh, yeah, yeah. So it just became kind of. explain what that is too. It's air and emissions. It's just another way to. The distributor doesn't want to get sued. They're not going to say, Warner Brothers isn't going to say, yeah, 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 yeah. Those movie clips are fine. We love it. And then they get sued. So they, they're not having that. They want it to back on the filmmaker. So it's a way of just checks and balances, covering yourself. I've spent like $2,500 to $4,500 on it. I don't know if you've bought it before. But every single doc that I distributed, you have this insurance that you can get. Policies vary. You probably know a lot about it, <laughs> having asked the question. But yes, I've always gotten it just because I'd like to avoid the backlash of any kind of thing. Although the right lawsuit might bring a lot of uh, pressure away, <laughs> but I was, uh, I'm more conservative. So you have any experience with the E&O? Oh yeah, so I always get it. Okay, yeah, just get it, <laughs> you know, just get it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So yeah, we can play another one now, but you can keep going. I don't want to throw no, you guys off. I think the show and tell is helpful. Yeah, we can go back to yeah cover things up and there there are 10 so again i'm just highlighting some and this will be the next one which is glow which so so like i said like strictly my first i'm just highlighting the holy rollers nearly becomes a movie but it doesn't happen so you move on like i i can only focus on what i can control as a filmmaker yeah you know? and you know before you, you screen and everything something else i'm i'm thinking about you know to your question is the fact is you know it's funny a lot of I do a lot of up and coming filmmakers, you know, and they, they have a dream, they have a vision and they want to go right for the dream and the vision. And I like to say to them, you might want to just pull back a little bit and walk before you run. So instead of putting a lot of money and a lot of energy and a lot of passion to something that you're like, it's got to get done. And then all of a sudden legs somehow come out underneath you is find something that you can learn mistakes. Cause like everything else, you're going to make mistakes and you've got to learn. And to what Jason's really showing here is there was a progression of yeah. how it moved. It wasn't like Netflix came in from the first piece. No. It was like he had to establish himself and all of us do. We have to kind of show what we bring to the table that we have a reputation behind us of delivering a good product and delivering it on time and, and on a budget, but, but also making sure that 
it's a relationship. It's back to that relationship again. So yeah. that's what I want to show you. So as you see the, the building of these projects, they're getting a little bigger, a little bigger. Yeah. And I can't stress how important film festivals are in my career. Not to, I mean, I also, I'm kind of skipping over that part of my career. I actually ran a film festival. It was called the United Film Festival. I started it, I ran it for 12 years, but I'm so crazy. I did it in LA, San Francisco, Chicago, New York, London, and my hometown in Tulsa, Oklahoma for 12 years. And I would go to those every state and run the event. So during a calendar year, I was doing that while I was making these. My 30s were just like this blur, but it was a great time. It was also nice to do festivals because you're not just in your own you know, bubble. You're getting outside, you're networking with others, you're meeting people. I was building relationships, not just with filmmakers that I would work with, but also festivals as a filmmaker. And I felt like I was in a real sweet spot. So like Holy Rollers comes out, every film festival that played Strictly Background wants to play Holy Rollers. That's huge. That lowers the bar for me. Like I could skip some submission fees. I can skip all the, am I gonna get accepted? Not because they held a spot, but they knew I would deliver. They saw yeah. the trailer and they're like, okay, we want the movie. And that's huge. And that leads to this next movie, which I'll show you, which was Glow and the Gorgeous Layers of Wrestling. It was a TV show in the 80s, 90s. Some of you may remember it, some not. Very nostalgic, which I'm into nostalgia. But here's the trailer and then we'll talk about it. You believe this stuff? Phil Donahue. Huh? Um, most little girls dream of becoming a teacher or a secretary or a nurse. Um, when you were little, did you dream about becoming a wrestler? was something new. It was women kind of taking over. Without it knowing, it was kind of a reality show before reality TV hit. What do you want? Wrestling? You mean what the guys do? I mean, is it real? Oh, I used to love to make a boo. I make children cry. Oh, that was good. I became Yanochka, so it was actually much more comfortable for me to speak like this because I did with everybody. It wasn't characters anymore. There was pushing and more pushing, you know, of like, do bigger, do better. It was a very, very surreal place to be. We had a director who liked to yell. And you're getting physically tortured all at the same time. It's just a world of madness in general. Did I answer that question? <laughs> it was politically incorrect and everybody loved it. This is disgraceful. People, are, they want an autograph so bad. I had the hardest time leaving. I was probably the last one on the bus every time. When we would run around the outside of the ring, people would put their hands out, you know, not thinking that the blade was real. Oh my! It was real. <laughs> So yeah. <laughs> fun, a lot of fun. And this actually was, it was a big release. It was amazing. MTV uh, did a, like broadcasted it. 
Um, we played Hot Docs, which it says in the trailer. And then, so give it a few years, and Netflix makes a TV show based on our doc. And they gave us all this credit. Now, unfortunately, I didn't own the IP address for Glow, so they didn't need me. They, one of the ladies actually owns the rights. But what was great was the show was, I loved it. I mean, the first season really follows the beats of the doc. So I highly recommend checking the doc out and the show. And then the pandemic ultimately shut it down in season four. Because by season two, it was already making its own thing. But I was very proud of it. And it put a new life in Glow. So Glow plays. It gets on Netflix and, and Amazon and broadcast. Disappears. The show brought the doc back. And Netflix came back to us and relicensed it at a lot more money because now they wanted it because they owned the show and that was kind of neat so re you know new energy into an old doc but i was very proud of it again it, there were some things in here that we kind of had to i wouldn't not overly manipulate but we didn't know how to end the movie because a lot of these women hadn't seen each other in 35 40 years and it was like well okay so one of them hinted at like oh, i'd be great if we could do a reunion and we're like now that's an idea to end the movie with. Mm -hmm. So we took their idea and just kind of helped orchestrate it because I just don't believe in like, yeah, like the real world and here, say this line. But yeah. we knew we would had to kind of that we would culminate to a reunion and that's how the doc ends and there's all this emotion and really a lot of fun. But uh, anyway, and we, I actually played this in LA. We had the world premiere. We had 26 of the Glow women on stage in a Q&A. That was one Q&A for the ages actually. I've recorded that. I should uh, release that somewhere. But anything come to mind before we? Well, I'll open up for questions. You know, is, so the biggest thing is you see how this is a re, it's a revolving projects come in, projects go out. It just increases and gets better with lessons learned. Emma, go ahead. In some ways, you're kind of like in a race against the clock with whatever social issues might be. Well, true. Yeah. Persevere, you know, years later. <laughs> yeah, I'm only highlighting three. I've had three that just, you know, great at the festivals, never found the audience past that. Netflix didn't come calling, you know, but uh, do 10, you have your, it's like a studio. Your hit rate, these three will carry the studio where these six lose money. And yeah, that's very true. I had some that I was convinced it would replicate what Holy Rollers did or Glow did, and it was dealt with Christianity or it dealt with something else, and it just didn't find the marketplace for whatever reason. So much is out of your control. I was lucky to have some success, and I had a few more, uh, probably half, actually. The other half were like, you know, I still got something out of it. The subject matter's got something out of it. That doesn't always lead to a money train. In fact, it rarely does. It may pay you to work on it, and that's a good thing. <laughs> but it can open up a career, it can give you access, you can leverage that in other ways. There's so many ways my career went, which we'll save that for another podcast. But anything else on, on this front? We still got time, we haven't transitioned yet at the Yeah, no, the doc, yeah, I want to get some more questions. Oh yeah. Oh, um, do you ever uh, ask any of the state financing um, entities to help you? I'm terrible at fundraising. I, re I am. I wasn't native to LA. I was there for 17 years, but it, it grant writing and I just know how to do stuff, create stuff. So I would take what money I had and I'd bet on myself. And if a few people wanted to help out, great. Like for instance, Holy Rollers and Glow get distribution deals, but it's up to me to do the deliverables. And so it's like, great, you got a deal, but deliverables are like $15,000. What 
for me at that point into the movie after three years, it was just like, that could have been $150,000. So we were doing Kickstarter campaigns at that point in time, just to have closing funds to do the movie. And that's a lot easier ask. We got a deal, here's the movie, have your name on the movie, get an EP credit. And so I did do that because I had to, but beyond that, I did not ask for funds to do things. I know you've had experience in that. Yeah, yeah, and I've done it in, you know, when you're going through the whole grant procedure and everything, you really got to find, you know, it's best to do it through a nonprofit. So if you're, yeah. if you've got a documentary that you're working with a nonprofit for their mission or subject matter thereof, that's a great start. Yeah. Because they are going to, because even if you find independent financiers that are ready to put some money in, if they're able to do it through a nonprofit, then it's a tax deduction for them, you know? And so, it's kind of a win-win for somebody. It's like, oh yeah, I've got a little extra money this year. You know, let me let me put it away, and and you know, it's it's not going to break our bank. But the thing is, is that I was talking to one of the filmmakers last night, and she reminded me of something that, to look into, and it's called Fractured Atlas. And Fractured Atlas kind of works as a almost that entity, that nonprofit entity that you can filter through. But you know, in going down the route, you know, that Jason talked about too, we've done things where we've done these um, campaigns of through Indiegogo or Kickstarter. I, I'm working on one now that's actually through Indiegogo. And we, we found that they definitely can work and they can help bring in a couple thousand to at least get you started and moving. Right. And, and sometimes that's good. I think that's the Kickstarter. <laughs> well, well, actually there's one called Seed and Spark. Yeah. That's strictly they're, yeah, for exactly. film. But we, this last one we did, we ended up going with Indiegogo because of the fact that we saw um, there was a lot more of an audience. But the one thing is, though, when you enter that, right, it's not just free money. I mean, it's, it takes, you know, whether you campaign yeah. for a, a month or two months, you're busy that whole time sending emails out to people, it, you know, asking for donations, asking for money. And then when it's done... You know, when you build these, you kind of have a tier list, you know, of like rewards that you will give somebody. And that's how it works. They put in $50. Well, you say, oh, you'll have a T-shirt. They put in $200. Well, maybe they'll have a little bit more, whatever you decide you want to share with them, a copy of the film or whatnot. But you have to, at the end of the campaign, you have to fulfill all these obligations, which yeah. takes a lot of time. Yeah. And so you got to be thinking strategy beforehand. Like, all right, it's not just giving them a shirt. I've got to mail the shirt. So I've got to take the time out to mail the shirt. I've got to pay for the packaging, you know, all that stuff that yeah. it's looking at things far in advance that there are different options out there. But again, that's why I say back to like, think small first, you know, learn from these mistakes that you may make so that you can move on to the bigger projects because it will take time. So if you have a bigger project in mind, start development on it. But it doesn't mean you have to like, look at, I gotta have this done next year. You know, enjoy the process. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Questions, anything yeah, else? Anything we also, I, uh, <clears throat> interesting setup. I have, uh, the next big project I'm working on is I wanna make a featured documentary about a backyard wrestling league. Awesome. Yeah, and, <laughs> and I know them, so like, I have the accessibility. Uh, these guys have been doing it for 20 years. Uh, they have, hundreds of episodes on YouTube. They did their own kind of home movie style documentary about what they had. Right. And one of the guys was showing it to me and looking at it, I'm like, all right, I know I can make a feature out of it. Yeah. And I know I Using can their footage as well? Well, that's, that's where my Okay, so okay. Like, I, I want to say they have maybe 50 minutes of a video. 
they're very confident with, because you know they're, they're filming their own stuff, they're very confident in that they can put it together. But just a lot of the, the, the tech, just having the good lighting going, yeah. things like that. Yeah. I want to say they have 50 minutes, I could probably salvage, God willing, half. Yeah. And all right, well, I know what to add to it from other people's perspectives that aren't in what they shot. Uh, a emotional narrative of it like all right what's the what's what's my hook here what advice could you give someone in my situation where it's like all right I want to take a thing that they've already kind of done and take it from a, a home movie that could be on YouTube 100 views and make it look something make it look like that how long ago did they shoot this footage is it old home it's, video or the interviews of them are within the last couple years oh, okay okay so it's and newer clips are you know you have the stuff from the late 90s where you know the cutaways to the old yeah the, the matches yeah you know things like that but the interviews are pretty recent okay what i would do i'm not telling you what to do but what i would do is get the rights to everything you know like if you're gonna work with them and you're part of the team whatever you work out but i would make that part of you know the trove of stuff you have because you can always pull through it you know they may, you probably could do it better, but I'd like to have options. As filmmakers, as documentarians, I want options. I want to shoot, 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 even if I don't need it. So I would want to have it rather than call, like, I'm only going to take this, this, get it all, make it part of it, and give you the ability to go through and make those decisions. That's what I would say. Because they're probably really close to this, but I'm assuming they want your help or they want your involvement. And you need that trust and you know them, it sounds like. so. may or may not be one of their champions. So. Oh, okay. Then they, this gets even better. Yeah. Yeah. So then I would just say make it part of it because it only helps. The ultimate thing is make a great product. So why limit yourself? Have it all, look at it, and then start fresh. And you could even start to use some of that or recreate it if it just, if the audio is bad. I just don't know. But that would be my. Not, rather than just discarding it, I would rather have it yeah. there because you just never know. Like, oh, he said that thing and it was just, I don't know. But you ask more questions about it, sure, but that's my take with footage. Yeah. But anything else that you want to... We have, uh, you know, like, so, some of what I've seen, there's definitely things I'm like, all right, I know I can call it like that. Or I know I yeah. can fix that. But some of them, it's like, all right, I would need to reshoot that. Yeah, but yeah. I don't, don't want to just hit them with the all right look at that video now say all that again exactly because it won't be the same yeah, yeah, yeah. it won't and it's okay i don't mind mixed formats i mean just to give you not everything's rosy when we were doing glow i mean this was a bigger beast than the one before and a bigger beast than the one before that but this movie we hit a point in production post-production we wanted it done and we we all watched a cut the two, the editor, the director, co-director, and it missed the mark completely. We went, it was a darker story. It followed one of the ladies that just had a sadder life. And it was just like, man, this is somber. This is supposed to be uplifting and triumphant. And we went back into post and spent another year and found the story that ultimately it became. So we didn't throw the other one away. We pulled things out and just did a whole reset, not new shooting, just editing. And in the end, it was the best thing we ever did. The movie would never have been what it became had we stuck with that. So same kind of thing there. Take that, add to it, and just throw it all together, you know, and start to build that story, find that story. And, you know, when, and going back to it, too, is, you know, when you first have this concept of what the idea is going to be about, what the finished film is going to be about, 
you know, the best thing to do is, you know, timeline it, outline oh, it. Oh, yeah. yeah. You know, not have to write in-depth proposal or anything, but just so that you have, okay, these are the, the guide marks. Because when you get in the editing room, it's going to change so much, which is good. And it's good to maybe, maybe try something different. But again, that's kind of when you want to do like a little test screening. See what they're getting out of it. Is it getting what you want to say? Or yeah. do you realize maybe we need to try a different, like, like Jason was just saying, like a darker edge to it. It's so easy in a documentary because everything is controlled by the editing. Everything. You're telling it, the story in the edit bay. You're yeah. finding the story, I should say. Finding the story. That's and keeping story. them in, involved is key, right? Not alienating them. Like, hey, we're all in this, but now we're just going this direction. It sounds like that's what's already kind of happening, yeah. which is good. But, but remember this too. You have got to take, you know, if you're going to become the producer, the director, it's under your leadership. Yeah. So it's so easy to get just slammed with everybody's opinion, you know, is just take it, but yeah. it's your decision. You know, yeah. you, it, the film has got to have a guide. Usually when there's too many producers, oh, it, too it many becomes, directors. you can't, yeah, he, I don't it, think it he's just always becomes that. a problem yeah. because it's, again, it's not like a narrative has a script. <laughs> Documentaries don't, and they could go any which way. And so it's kind of important that everyone's approving it, but have you or someone else be that. Listen, I yeah. have final say. Exactly. Yeah. Basically, you're not going to please them all the entire time. I'm sure you'll have disagreements, but if you're in charge, just the goal is to make the best movie that the most people can see and it can have some staying power, which it sounds like you're kind of dialed in on. And congratulations for being a champ. Maybe, maybe not champ. <laughs> you know, I'm not run out of battery, but let's take another question and then we'll maybe we'll take a quick break before we transition to podcasting so I can reload. But any other questions before we do that? finding those stories that are worth telling, like going in, finding the stories about the, like, gambling, like, religious people, finding the stories about all the, like, what, what is it, like, finding those nonprofits, finding those, those stories that are worth telling. Well, I wish I could say that I was looking for a Christian card county movie. <laughs> it, it just kind of happened. Again, not just by chance, it's because I was working in the industry and building my festivals and people were pitching me ideas as if I was a mini studio. So I was very lucky in that regard. So I don't, but my ears were always, you know, listening. I was focused and I have certain things that just trigger like the glow. Those guys told me about that. And I was in, it didn't even finish their sentence. I grew up knowing Glow. I was like, I'm, I'm in. And by the way, repeat relationships. Some of these docs, I, 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 so after the first one, I was producer, director, really the whole thing. After that, I no longer directed. I just didn't have time. I had to work with a director the next nine because I was running the festivals. And the first one, I realized, oh, I, I learned a ton. A to Z, everything you could do from craft service to you know, whatever you needed, I would do it. Um, by the next ones, I was looking for a very competent and like-minded director to work with. And some of them, we weighed like three movies together. So we had done the Rocket Fire Explosion. These guys that worked on Glow with, 
they pitched me this. It was like the rise and fall of Showbiz Pizza and the animatronic rock band that deals with the rise and fall of Chuck E. Cheese Pizza. Well, I grew up in a town that we had a Showbiz Pizza. I remember this animatronic rock band. And I was in right then and there because we had the same sensibilities. So again, that I my outreach was broader than most, maybe, because I had some people coming to me with good ideas and I knew how to execute and make it together. So are you struggling with finding a subject or thinking it's going to be marketable for you to do or all the way around i feel like my biggest my my biggest issue is like not only finding like the subject matter and like what i want to make a documentary on but also when i do find like like or have ideas of like what i want for like a message or a story that i want to tell um finding like the right people to interview, finding the right, like, where to look for not only, like, um, like, this, the, the idea at, at, at its forefront, but, like, from, from once I have the idea, where to go to get all the things I need. So, let me add this, is I think the best direction for you is because you need to establish yourself as a filmmaker right. so that others will come to you with those stories. And then it's not you finding it. The stories are going to find you. But you can start simple with your phone, right? Pick somebody from your family and just do a little story about them. You know, I mean, one of the basic things I tell people now, it's so easy, is that if you have a somebody that's an, an, an elderly person in your family, right, is go through the photo album with them. And chances are you can find pictures of them as a kid mm -hmm. and say, tell me a story about this. And now you've got them, you can interview them, record them telling you the story. And now you've got a photograph that you could use as B-roll or maybe a couple of other photographs, right? Let that start the process. And the key is you selling you as a filmmaker. So because we talked about before, it's got to be a reciprocal trust. Yeah. So when you do an interview with somebody else, they see, because they've obviously saw Jason when he did with the first film, he knows how to do it. You know, I mean, I mean, I can only say And I that built confidence in myself. I knew I could do it. I didn't know going in. That was a big thing to go from shorts to features, which not to take over, but I would, if I'm you, I would work on a short, even a short short, just to build a confidence in yourself as a filmmaker. You got to find your own voice. No one's going to come and work with you if you don't even know what you want to do or you have confidence yet, but you have interest. And, and I think a lot, Jay, right? Yeah, I met you, you. No mask this year. I'm recognize. I don't recognize some people, but I think that that's what you need to do. And and yeah, it doesn't have to be for a festival. It could be for self. Just try to tell something yeah. and see how you put it together. And and, and what I'm getting at is do a couple of short ones. Yeah. So you get them. Let me simple at first, you know. But creating a website for yourself, so you, now you have a showcase, a portfolio to show people. And people yep. will talk. And as I said earlier, like there may be, you may have an opportunity to like have a local newspaper do a story on you doing the documentary and that'll get the word out. Oh, there's a filmmaker in town. Somebody will come to you. You know, they may not come to you with money, but they'll come to you with an idea. Probably not money. And, and at, probably, at least it will start the relationship to the next project, yeah. you know, but yeah. it's so important to you, whatever you do, you believe in 100% because it's all you that's going to carry it through. And even before mm -hmm. that, I had a lot of people, which is great because you're, you're mentoring as you go as well. I didn't have a lot of mentors, but that's okay. 
But I had some PAs on some of these docs, and they went on to become directors. They, I had one PA on six of my docs, and he made a huge movie last year. So maybe just go get on some sets or help behind the scenes on a doc that you're intrigued in. Then that might start to kind of, you know, work with Alec. This guy has a lot going on well, just, in town. Well, well, you know what? You got I mean, the important thing is through this whole process, find mentors. Yes. Find people that you yeah. can learn from. You know, I um, I tease everybody because I, when I was a young busboy and everything, the uh, the guy I worked with said, he said to me, he said, you want to learn how to be a waiter? Steal. And I'm like, what? Steal? <laughs> and he's like, watch what they do right and do that and you'll get a big tip. Watch what they do wrong and don't do that. So learn from their mistakes before you learn from your mistakes. It's kind of like instead of investing in your own money, your own movie, have somebody else invest in your movie, right? Yeah. But start small. And you know what? These are things you can make reels out of and put out on Instagram. Get a following. And that's the important thing is I think all the filmmakers are, they have to become their own celebrities in a way. You know, so... Yeah, that's true. Small. Yeah. More small steps is going to get you further than trying to create a feature film and it just doesn't end up being completed. Yeah. I have a question just generally about the genre. Okay. Um, is it, one thing that kind of intrigues me, I, like, I love documentaries, but I wonder is it like a particular demographic that likes documentaries more than others? Like do our, I'm not 21, so our younger people liking documentaries or is it more topic driven you know i don't know when i jumped into strictly background docs weren't in vogue it was not like oh four it wasn't all the rave you know when i was growing yeah. up i used to love the show family ties and uh, mr keaton was a documentarian i thought well that's kind of cool but it was just this weird strange pbs documentary world so now I'm moving to LA and think, well, I can do more with less and I know I can tell a story. It's changed since 04 or 07 when the movie comes out. Netflix has changed the game. Amazon's changed the game. I'd say more broad. I think ages young and old are watching documentaries and the series. You're just captivated to go to the next episode, that whole binging culture. It's funny. I'm not in the game anymore. It's like, oh man, I should be in the game now. Maybe I could like Netflix is paying some of my friends to do a six part series or it's okay. I, I love what I'm doing, but I'm just saying, I think it's even more people, more eyeballs, more traction. It's never been so popular. In fact, I wish the Oscars broke genre docs into genres like nature docs and crime docs. They just kind of clump it into one. Yeah, and I don't yeah. think that that should probably change at some point. I would hope. I, and, and, you know, I was going to say, it, I mean, the plethora of stations that are out there, you know, doing different things is there is it, it's growing because I think the media is growing in the access because now more people can tell their stories. You know, how it's told, you know, is where that budget kind of comes in. What kind of equipment is brought in and, and you know, whether there's graphics or, or any of that kind of stuff. But I think, I think the one thing that seems to be turning, and I think it, in my opinion, I feel like it's turning in narrative as well as documentary, is things are just getting shorter. People want bites, you know, or they want something that they can see in segments, you know, and, and I see it becoming very popular, you know, just getting on the train or getting on a public transportation. And that's when most people, young people are looking at their phones trying to find something, you know, so now it's kind of how that Instagram real thing has started to take off because they can stop and watch a short story and then ah, I'm done with it, you know, so it's kind of like, I think the access, you know, with this 
has made it a lot easier for people to tell their stories. The problem is a lot of people don't know how yet. And that's why I say it's better to get with a mentor. Watch somebody else do it and make mistakes. Learn from them and, you know, start thinking, start cultivating your own ideas, you know, for whatever project it may be. And then when you're ready or even, you know, you're going to start to find more people. You're going to start to have a broader um, circle, if you will, of other people in the industry that can help you. Because it may be one of those things that, like, let's say you do do a first cut you want to bring in those people that work with you in the industry. Cause as I said about that screen and bash, they're going to give you their honest opinion, you know, and not to get defensive, just up for you to take it, you know, absorb it and say, okay, is this the right direction that I want to tell the story in the end? Again, it's important. It's your project. It's your story. It's your vision. You know, it's, um, and it kind of gets back to the question that was as far as like an audience versus, you know, and I think, I think if you believe in the subject matter and you're that passionate about it, your audience is going to find you because their chances are they're as passionate about it as well. Yeah. And when they see something that's well made, yeah, huge, it goes far when yeah. they see something that's not well made, that's where it just falls apart. Yeah. You know? I've got the plugs. I'm usually in a sound booth. I, I rarely have to go off battery. We're good. We don't really take a break. We can just transition now and we can still talk about docs. We can answer things, but we'll transition to podcasting, which is what my career did um, after making 10. And it's, you know, it's a lot to do 10 things and cover over a decade of time. I did a Strictly Background, Rocket Fire Explosion, Clean Flicks was a, a big doc, which was fun. My one narrative. Uh, I do, I don't. Holy Rollers Glow. Seder Mania was another wrestling movie. Dealt with Hulk Hogan, uh, his biggest fan. Then I did a couple biopics. The Albert S. Ruddy, he actually produced The Godfather. And uh, we won't show the trailer, but it's a great doc. He really had to go to the mob and get permission to, to make the movie. They made a show on Paramount about him called The Offer. The Offering. Have you, have about, you seen that? It's no, I, I haven't even seen it, and I oh know gosh, Albert Ruddy. Paramount, yeah, watch it, watch it because it's great. It's a great, it's not a mockumentary, it it's really is a narrative story about how they made The Godfather, yeah. And the story is amazing, and he tells it in our documentary as well. So he's fascinating. Yeah. County Fair, Texas, and then I did another bio doc, not such a bad guy, conversations with Dabney Coleman, the great character actor, great guy, sharp as attack, and is I think 90s now. And so that now we'll transition away from those two. So did the offer oh. boost? Um, you know, unfortunately, Emma, this is a sad tale. Uh, this is where it gets dark. Now, that doc, um, talk about having too many cooks in the kitchen. I was an executive producer on that movie, and we had some clips from Albert S. Ruddy won an Oscar for The Godfather. He also won one for Million Dollar Baby. Oddly enough, Clint Eastwood gave him the Oscar, uh, no, for The Godfather in, back in the 70s. But anyway, long story short, we ran into some fair use acts and uh, the other producers who were more producer than me, I was more like shepherding the movie, finding the story, came along later. They didn't feel comfortable moving forward with e and and getting it released. So this movie, the only one of my movies, is not available anywhere. So the offer would have boosted this if this was released on a platform. It's long enough now. I'm hoping we could revisit it. I mean, it's 10 years now. I'd love to have it out there. 
the story's rich. So great question. And maybe, maybe at some point. Another question? Please, of course. Do you ever struggle with like, am I bordering on exploiting my subjects? Or, um, or uh, how do you gauge if you're kind of maybe going too far or they wouldn't be happy with it? Or, yeah. Um, I haven't struggled with that. Yeah, I, I haven't struggled with it. I mean, I really haven't. I strictly, I, I mean, I did have to kind of get them work and they weren't working for, when I was kind of shopping them, if you will, to get them on sets, but they were getting paid from them and we had conversations about this. Had they been resistant, yeah, I, I probably would have accepted that and not had that footage in there. So no, I've never done it. So I don't know. I wouldn't feel comfortable with it. I built relationships with all of these people in docs. Even it's funny, the first one, which I, I reference a lot because it's so unique in the sense that you build relationships with 10 different people. They would tell me years later, they still do. Hey, I'm going to be in this movie like next week. It's like, I've moved on so <laughs> many times over, but I still have a really, oh, that's great, man. You get that commercial gig. And so uh, that's how I am. I, I take that serious, that relationship serious. So exploitation just never came in to play for me. But have you dealt with any of that? No, because you know what? I, I guess it's again going being, it's again being very, not a podcaster, very honest with the people that I've represented on camera. I mean, it, it's to me, it is that wanting to be wanting, wanting just wanting to do the right thing and i think i think my inner gut was ever questioning it i just didn't go there because i've seen people that did go there right never good yeah yeah it, no it's, good. it always comes back and bites them just say it again emma the, if you're the interviewer and the director right and usually that's the same. Usually the interviewer is the director, you know, and sometimes it's all three, you know, at once. But yeah, because you're you're responsible, and that's the end yeah, game. Yeah. You're responsible not just to deliver a film that you're happy with, but all the people that have been involved. You know, I want to make them feel good about being in that film too. You know, right. very good. Good questions, Emma. Very good. Oh, please. What's your, what's your relationship with preparation? Say you're doing a subject matter, and obviously your guests and maybe even your sponsor of the project knows is an expert on it, and, all, and your audience may be uh, very key on, on all the subject that uh, that's being discussed. Will you share with us your your either your preparation as far as researching, mm. or are you just a really good interrogator, or both? Yeah, both. No, I like to think I am. Well, again, it goes back to passion. Do I care about it? Am I going to learn about it? Is this like, oh gosh, this is mind numbing. I wasn't dealing with crazy things. Uh, you know, I didn't deal with any political movies or things that I didn't cross. I was more character driven. So it was easy for me to get into the people. I love people and I love interviewing and getting to the, you know, the source material. Um, so I didn't have a lot of issues with that. Research was big. Research was was it's very huge. big to me because, and I learned a lesson where I went in and did an interview and I didn't do background research on this person. And I looked like an idiot because I asked a question that, you know, clearly the, you know, the interview was like, you should know this. Are, are you, yeah. yeah. You don't. And I thought, wow. And I, and you know, I just tried to smooth it over as best I can. I think it all worked out good. And, you know, in the end we, you know, we used the interview in the film and they were all good with it, but it was a lesson I learned that I, 
that's kind of one thing that I'm going to say that I think you, I'm glad you asked that because it's definitely, I think, so important Yeah, to come in to feel like so that you can have that conversation, not ask questions, have a conversation with that person so that they feel comfortable and kind of knowing a little bit of their background, even if it's something like your topic is something that's, you know, when we do our interviews, we usually, even though the interview may be, you know, 15 minutes, I ask for a good hour of that person just Absolutely. so I can sit and talk with them yeah. before a camera rolls, just to, again, comfortable, you know, make them feel comfortable. So try to give them as much time and answer as many questions on their point too. But I hope that answers your question. Yeah, sort of. Yeah, and the interview process, I agree. And that goes to podcasting, too. I do not call it an interview. I may label it an interview, but I try to have a conversation. And then if you know these things and they get that sense right away, their walls come down. Because a lot of times if I'm interviewing a celebrity, they've been asked these questions. I'm not bringing, I'm not like 60 minutes cracking something open. But I'm there and I'm genuinely interested and I know some stuff about them. Their guards come down very quickly. And then they start to open and divulge things. And that's just one-on-one. -on -one. It's not really subject matter. That's more just people. But my projects are really people-focused. So I'm going to tag know. on something he just said, because I think it's very important when you're doing interviews, sometimes don't say anything. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> just sit there. Let them talk. You know, they want to talk. <laughs> they're going to feel like, all right, I'm going to tell you a little bit more. And all of a sudden, you get this like, holy cow, I didn't realize that story was there. About and you start to, again, engage again in conversation and everything. And you, you're able to pull things out of it. Because you're right. Everyone is so, you know, we, we've all got our skeletons in the closet, you know. And, and yeah. they realize camera's there. All right, this is for in perpetuity right there, right? So the conversation talks. But again, as you're creating this relationship with somebody you may not have even known other than a pre-phone call, yeah. they're feeling comfortable with you and then they're trusting you with this information. So I can't throw it out enough is be respectful of that. Yeah. You know, it's be because it will only do you good. If you, you I, I had a situation where a friend of mine had taken footage from an interview and he sold it to another documentary. And oh my God, all hellfires broke loose on them. I'm so glad I was involved with any of the projects, but that's I heard not, it in a conversation. Ethical, yeah. And it was just, and all it took was him calling the person they interviewed saying, Hey, listen, do you mind if I, you know, and what he did was he sold the footage to them, mm. but just letting the person know, yeah. it just means so much. I mean, that's being human, right? It's just, just being real. I like but, you're saying nothing. I like that. I want to listen to that interview. Alec just sits there. Yeah, like right, right. One trick I've no I haven't really used it, but I've, this is true. If you're not sure of something or someone's just a hard nut to crack, right? They're not giving you anything. You could like say something inaccurate and they'll correct you. And then they'll, they'll open up and tell you like, that's one way I did some trick I've learned, but I haven't had to use, but you're like, Oh, you did this in 2015. What, people want to correct you right away and divulge more. So, so, you know, but I'm very, I come in a lot more vulnerable and uh, I did my research. I know all about Alec and the people respect <laughs> that as well. If you know, like, wow, you went back to my childhood, kind of like the inside the actor studio, James Linton, do that research, get that stuff. And they're like, this guy really spent the time. I'm happy to go one-on-one -on -one with this person and have a pre-interview. I don't just start rolling right away. You got to build a rapport, you know, and once you're comfortable, can we start recording now? Okay, great. You know, and this which is, is a key. great 
transition into the podcast yeah. because to me that's clearly when and I'm just going to say when Jason told me about his transition I didn't I'm not somebody that listens to a lot of podcasts and I I was kind of thinking hmm but I got to understand it more and more because it is about an interview it just no visuals you know or, or they can be with visuals on YouTube yeah, I they guess, could, but, yeah. Yeah. but the fact is it is just that relationship that you have with the person that you're interviewing so to make them feel comfortable so they will give you information that you know you're looking for other than just a no 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 wasn't there you know yeah and not a very good interview i hope that helps okay i have been interviewed by two podcasters who are very well known in the industry that yeah I'm in. and in <coughs> cases they sent me emails yeah with a series of questions yeah so you could go over them yeah and one of them actually told me he said i can always tell when my guests have done their homework he said hey, you did yours it was a great interview oh that's great and the other one when i did it i actually went to his studio and i videotaped him and i doing his podcast and put him on my <laughs> there you go i like cross promoting i like yeah. that I've done the questionnaire before, but I haven't done it recently because some people wouldn't fill it out. And then you got this weird point of contention, like, well, they didn't even fill it out. And then, so I've gotten away from it, but it's effective if, you know, you do it. And, and I just want to add to this, because it's a good question to kind of bring up too. a good point, is I don't rely on handing questions to people. Yeah. And the reason why I don't is I feel like whatever they're going to say, it's going to come from the heart. Yeah. And I tell them that. And because I found that if I give people questions, they start to overthink it. They start to write notes down. They, yeah. they, you know, and if they don't have the piece of paper yeah, there, like what did I write? Them, what did I say? They start to freak yeah. out. But you were a pro, but some people struggle with that. Yeah, sure. yeah, yeah, yeah. So and as you get become more seasoned interviewer, you don't. I don't rely on that anymore. I really don't. I do my research, learn it, and just go for. It. It's also entertaining. I'm not just trying to do an interview to get notes to tell a story. I'm trying to make it an entertaining conversation. So it's got to be spontaneous. It needs to, and you can edit. There's that too. I do a lot of posts on, on podcasts. Some don't. We do. Or if you come to me and say, I'm not supposed to talk about that. I'm going to take it out. I have a responsibility yeah. for my relationship with my, if it's Alec or anybody to remove those things. So well, it's a good transition. We have already transitioned to podcasting 101. And so in 2019, I launched Just Curious Media. There is the logo. And so it was new to me. And why did I do this? Well, I felt like I had a lifetime in documentaries and film festivals. And even by like 2015, I was thinking about doing a podcast. And I was going to do one show, and it was going to be called Just Curious. And it was me talking to industry people about how they got to where they're at. Like, hey, because I've met a lot of people in LA being there for so long. I play soccer, I'm involved in the community. I'd have celebrities on my soccer team. So access was there. And I was like, that's what I'll do. It'll just be like one-offs. And, and then the ideas just started to grow because I like to do things on a larger scale. And just Curious became the company and other shows fell underneath that. So you have to start somewhere. So of course I leaned into my nostalgia and I came out with Let's Talk Cobra Kai. I don't know if you're familiar with the show on Netflix, but it was on YouTube at the time. The first two seasons were on YouTube, and not that many people were talking about it, to be completely honest, Alec. I was reluctant. I'm a big fan of The Karate Kid. I put it on. I thought, there's something here. The show was on a hiatus, and I said, okay, I'm going to do a two-person show 
talking about Cobra Kai, the episodes, breaking it down, bringing color commentary, humor, nostalgia, and it's a chance to test and see if I can even do this. That's really what it was. It was a platform to try. But the cost of entry is a heck of a lot easier on a podcast than documentaries. And I had all that knowledge and know-how. And I had to just, I mean, this is not like my studio, but this is more of just a fly, you know, operation on the go. But the cost was cheaper. And I went and got someone who I'd known relationships, Sal Rodriguez, who is it was an MC at some of my festivals in LA. I'd known him. He also tried out for Strictly Background. He was too young. And I've known him for 15 years and he came on, he was a comedian and still is and is on his own shows and uh, XM radio. So we decided to co-host this show, Let's Talk Cobra Kai. And we were just using it as a launch point. I had no idea a year later, Netflix would take over the show. The show would go gangbusters and our show would blow up and become the most popular show covering the show, Cobra Kai. Very meta. And so here we are. But now we've, we don't just do episodes for the show. We do episodes even when there's no show. We're like at 160 episodes now. We just do anything and everything in the universe of the Karate Kid and Cobra Kai. We've had actors on. We've gone to locations. It's become a mainstay and it gave me the confidence to grow the company and let's just talk about that a little bit Please. about Kai. so really it started as a conversation yes it was the two of you talking about a subject matter that you both it's enjoyed. still a conversation but yes it, right 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 sorry but it's again you picked something that you were passionate yes. about. yes and no need to have a camera for that point i mean yeah, we is, weren't we were not going on youtube at that point right it was yeah. just audio so i mean again cost is much easier to start with yeah but it's storytelling at its core, right? Yeah. So it's it's kind of, and the question is, who else wants to listen in on yeah. the conversation? Yeah, right? so again, so. this was just a testing ground for me, and that's all it was. It could have been a trial, and I'm done, and I've uh, scratched that you know itch to maybe do a podcast, and I'm out. And I had to think the format. Do I do a one-person, two-person? Do I do a host with guest hosts? But I knew Sal, and I figured it was an easy way to cross into this new realm, right, if you will. Mm -hmm. And it was just lucky timing was on my side because of Netflix. And we just, all, and so with podcasts, unlike docs, you see real time analytics, every download. If you want to look at your dashboard, you can look at it. And so, yeah, at first it was crickets. We're a new show in the space and a new podcast with five episodes doesn't mean much, doesn't move the needle. But then all of a sudden we had 20 episodes and we were done. We had done season one, season two. So we talked about every episode and we also did the movie, the original movie. And we were on hold for season three. And then Netflix acquires the show. They put the show on Netflix before season three. And we were now getting not 50 downloads in a day. We were getting, or in a month even, we were getting like 5,000, 10,000, 15. I thought, oh, okay, we need more content. This is a content game. Now we have a fan base. We can't just wait for season three to launch. We got to get creative. Stoked my fire. I knew we had people listening and that reignited me to do so, to get back in studio and grow as a podcaster. I had a lot to learn. I had a lot to learn. I'm like 300 plus episodes in now. It becomes a rhythm, a dance. But at first you're just like, is this thing on? Okay, okay. you make sure everything's good. I mean, there's five shows now we'll get into, but that was how we started or i started yeah let me open it up questions oh, please about if there, podcasting. If there is, jump in if you have any 
So you kind of touched on this a little bit, but I was yep. hoping maybe you could elaborate on it more um, in terms of like the fundamental differences between you know having a conversation or an interview on a podcast versus having an interview for the purpose of a documentary. Like how does how does that work? They are different. I mean, doing interviews is great, but there's barriers to entry. You have to schedule. They have to be available. You know those so. That's great. I love it. And we can just talk about that. But for the most part, on the, a lot of my shows, they're just co-hosting. So you've taken a lot of that away. And we know we're going to get in there and just, you just start and you hit the ground running and you're tackling a subject. I like that because it creates more episodes quicker. You know, like, hey, Alex going to be on. You're with me on this season. And we just, like, we don't have to get to know each other. We just jump in on the baseline and we're talking. My co-host, for instance. If I'm doing an interview, I've had like people from the original movie on. I've had actors from the show. I've had stunt people on the show. It's very similar. It's very, and they're long form. This becomes an hour plus because I don't know them. They don't know me. And they've been interviewed on other shows and I'm trying to give it our style. So I feel it's very similar, although it just lives in this space. It's not attached to something else. There's no documentary waiting, but I do treat that time as getting to know everything I can about them and pull out their passion for their role in whatever we're talking about. I've had bigger celebrities on, and I want them to enjoy their time. So A, they'll come back, they'll tell others, but it also is entertaining for people to hear and say, oh, wow, I heard your episode with Ralph Macchio. I haven't had him on yet, but soon. Uh, that was great. I think I want to be on. So I'm always holding that bar high because you never know who's listening. But it is not attached to something else. It's like, so I'm not going, I could use that in that third act. No, that's gone. It's a lot easier just to be in the moment. And there's something about just being in the moment that's amazing, you know? We're so caught up with things. When you're present in something, I work out a lot. I'm an athlete. I'm not carrying my phone at my workouts or when I'm playing sports. Same with podcasting or filmmaking. You are present. You're giving that person your undivided attention, them as well. And it's amazing. It's like a high, you know, a natural high. And I love it. And I think that resonates because then they like, oh, I'm getting excited. I've got on with people in that pre-time and they're just like, what is this? What's this last time? You know, whatever. And then I have to win them over, but you try to, and I'm successful at it because I'm there for the right reasons, I think. And that's genuine and it comes through. Mm-hmm. So hopefully that answers some of that, but I say it's easier. Yeah. It's not attached to anything else. I know we're in this age of like a lot of tele whatever, um, where interviews are happening via Zoom. Yeah. I love your questions. It's so multi-pronged. It, it is perfect because um, it's funny. So I, I said pandemic and pre-pandemic because it plays a role. I had only done 20 episodes together with my co-host in studio. And then and I was in Los Angeles. And then we're on lockdown. And I'm like, oh, geez, now what, right? So I quickly was learning how to record remotely 
and have my co-host record remotely so and rely on one of these zoom or riverside or all these other platforms so i kind of leaned into that early just because i needed to keep episodes coming and over time and now i've been doing that several years i much prefer it because of time and space and budget and accessibility and people are so open to like yeah i'll do that zoom call with you i got no problem with that and now i'm in like a awesome studio i have a total unique sound booth so i know i can count on my audio being like crisp in my if i'm doing an interview not my co-host my co-host i built him a similar studio in los angeles so we can always just go into that zone but i can have them call in uh, we do zoom we do riverside have headphones on ideally some don't but their audio can be a little bit less but at least they're accessible and they're all over the place. I prefer it because my audio is clean, theirs is theirs. And I think we're more open because of the pandemic and Zoom that they can connect in that way, honestly. It rewired us all. And so I, I think it's a, a great thing. Quality is still essential to me. You know, I really got to control the audio and, and whatnot, but I think, and you can build a rapport. You really can. I, like I say, before I hit record and we're going, I want to build trust if I don't know you and then kind of give you a view of what we're doing. Some, yeah, I mean, some are like standoffish, like, what are we doing? What's this for? What are we going to cover? Are you going to get into my life? I'm like, well, okay, I got to like, just take baby steps with this person. And you do. And once you kind of have that, okay, right, okay, and then you move forward and all is good. So I, uh, yeah, I don't think I would be as successful as a podcaster now if I was relying on coming to my studio. I'd be very limited. I'd have to go back to LA, which wouldn't be terrible, but I would lose out on the connections here. And, you know, it's just so, anything to say? No, it's a great no, question. No, I, I want to ask other questions because we're going to wrap up soon just with time. So. So I'm just wondering, like, where's the money? Show me the money. Show me the money. Jerry Maguire. <laughs> Great question. Well, that is a good question. That was on our list. So, um, I mean, that's what everybody asks. How do you make money? Well, you, A, you got to have fans. You need traction, right? And I had confidence to build the company bigger because we do have a lot of fans for one show. And you can convert fans to sponsors and or your fans can become Patreons or you can have paywalls and premium content. I don't have all the answers. I'm just four years in and building a brand. I'd rather build a brand and have just a lot of shows and a lot of fans and allegiance and then leverage that more. But it's all analytics. If you have a sponsor, you start hitting certain thresholds, like 10,000 you know, per episode or per month even, it's immediate. You can activate a relationship with Blue Apron or HelloFresh or whatever. They just want to see your numbers. You've got to back it up. You can also do ads to build your audience. I'm doing it organically. To me, this is a lifestyle. I didn't get into this to say, hey, this is hot. I'm in this now. No, this is long term for me. So I'd rather do it slowly. And just so what I've done is I'm trying to build this brand up. And I'm not just about Karate Kid. It's not even my favorite movie, but I love it. So I quickly wanted to kind of get in the marketplace and do have another offering. And so we do a crime show called That's a Crime. But not like most crime shows, just doing serial killers. We cover things from misdemeanors to murders. So there's a lot of lighter episodes. We do crypto crimes and we do classic crimes. You can imagine that's a hot topic in the podcast space, but it just makes our brand bigger. 
let's talk movies. I added that during the pandemic because I was going crazy on the lockdown and it was an opportunity to just talk about various movies and use it as a testing tool to maybe launch new shows, which I'll get to in a second. Then I launched Dog On. Dogs are very close to my heart. I've lost a couple as um, you know, a dog owner and lover. And this is a show that people come on and honor their memories of their dogs' lives and we celebrate them as they moved on. Uh, again, not because this will be a hit, but I'm passionate, I know how to do it, and I'm trying to just build the brand and offer a lot of entertaining. And I'm seeing traction. So, which is great. If I wasn't, I would easily just say, dump that show. It's just costing us too much, but. And this is a different style show too. This is very different style where it's a conversation with another person. This is one that's more audience generated where people. No, come I am. On, I am. Well, I either do a solo episode of a tribute of a dog. If I find out information, not everyone wants to come on and talk about that losing their dog. But as we get bigger, I've had some people on and that's a tougher show, man, but it's celebratory, but it's tough. And it helps me also with my healing and wounds and uh, whew, okay, I got to move on. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> oh man, that stirs up the pot. But uh, but a great show, and we so we do have guests on. Mm -hmm. And as it gets bigger, we'll have more. Now we do this show, Speak of the Devil, Into the Mystic, because of a relationship with Shereen Anderson right over there on our computer. And uh, working, never stops working, the founder and executive director of the Mystic Film Festival. And we've literally just started this a few months ago, but we've had the good fortune to have Karen Allen from Animal House, Raiders of the Lost Ark, Starman, Carl Gottlieb, he wrote Jaws, he wrote The Jerk, Caveman, Peter Filardi, a local legend, he wrote Flatliners, The Craft, and Shereen Anderson was just on this week about the origins of the festival. So this is a relationship that like, hey, you do this well, we do this, we like each other, so this is something new for me. I've never co-produced a show, and I'm very open because I'm passionate about it. And these people all had some sort of tie to the festival. Again, building the brand. Every show has its own metrics and its own analytics, but then collectively we're able to show we're building. I've been approached by lots of networks like, hey, can we move your shows to our network? And I don't want to give up that control just yet. Can you believe this stuff? Oh my God. <laughs> Dude, throw a Phil Donahue in there every once in a while. Wow, that scared the crap out of me. So I think that's helping. I didn't want to just, yeah, I'll give you guys control and I'll be the, I want to keep building it until you know, we have bigger sponsors. We fans pay us. We have Patreon. We have paywalls now. And so I'm still experimenting. It's vastly growing and expanding. Do you know what Patreon is? Does everyone know? Yeah. Okay. 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 Speak to Patreon, if you will. People give you money. Yeah. 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 It's, it's, it's kind of like Kickstarter thing, you know? and they can, you know, you can give them things. I've had fans on. Talk about meta. I've had like super fans on the show and they're like freaking out and they're on an episode and that's fun. It's giving back to the fandom. And then it, it spawned more. We read all of our Apple five-star reviews online just because it's like, hey, it invokes more because our numbers have been really great and it's helped us stand out. I mean, it's a blue ocean. There's so many freaking podcasts. So I didn't just want a wonder. I want to build a brand, a network. And so I have a new show coming out hopefully next month. So not as if I don't have enough, but a show I'm passionate about, my favorite movie of all time, Let's Talk Jaws is coming. And what I right here, just when you thought it was safe to be podcasting, <laughs> um, I have a lot of connection to this movie. I was PR on the documentary, The Shark is Still Working, which was, it's on the Blu-ray. Um, know a lot of people from the original movie, not Spielberg or Williams, but we'll probably have them on. And there's a million ways I can do episodes. 
episodes talking about the franchise, if you will. Now there's a Broadway show. Exactly. I'm gonna, I want to go see that. The shark is broken. Yeah. yeah. Sorry, what did you say? There's no copyright or anything when you're targeting or... That was my question. Just talking about something? No. Uh, yeah. No. Like, I mean, I'm not playing the movie... On, so sometimes I'll play, so let's talk movies, for instance, like we just had an episode come out, I guess it comes out tomorrow, the new Martin Scorsese movie. We'll do a trailer. Sometimes we'll do like, a, just watch this trailer. We'll play the trailer. You see the trailer. YouTube marks it, because we have a YouTube version and we have the much better audio version, which is like mixed and just sounds better. It's tighter editing. But YouTube just marks it as copyright. We're not selling anything. We're promoting a movie. So I'm not putting on Jaws the movie on a podcast. But no, there's no nothing against you copyright to talk and endorse and publicize and you know lift up a brand. So by no means. And how long does it take you to do an episode? And how much editing time is there? Yeah, I do edit. And there is long form, short form. We'll have episodes that are eight minutes. We'll have episodes that are two and a half hours. We do scene by scene breakdowns. We've done Terminator, Die Hard, so many movies, but that was early on. And now it's like, you know what? Let's break these episodes up into shorter episodes. Break them up into acts. But I'll still edit. There could be a bump. There could be something. I've got, I mean, you do 300, you become much quicker at it. You know, um, or we've dealt with sound issues like, oh, my gosh, that guy had that AC going the whole time. And then we'll mix it. We'll spend more time in post. But, yeah, quality's key. Listen to our shows and you'll say, oh, yeah, that's that's up there. Now, it's the talkies. I'm not doing a documentary podcast just yet. I'd like to, but it takes more time, more budget. And I'm waiting until I'm at that point where I go off and do like a six part, whatever, deep dive on something else more intimate story. These are all more conversations, which I still love and easier to produce. Yeah, more questions, anything? We're trying to cram a bunch in here. Uh, what's your process for editing podcasts? So I use Audition, Adobe Audition, which I love. And I, once, it's the, once I sync the files, I'll listen in real time and I'm pretty picky. I want it right. I will spend more time in there fixing it if there's a problem. I take out repeated, you know, repeat words, mistakes. If there's a lot of, you know, all I guess his mic is on for you guys, but pops. So I'm, I, I take all that out. But content-wise, it's less only when needed if it's like, oh, that really missed the bar. Oh, they made a mistake. Or I made a mistake. You know, I'll even take it out of the video. But, I mean, I guess that's my process. I'm going linear down the timeline and leaving markers. And, I mean, it, it took me hours back in the day. Two and a half hour episodes, like, daunting. And you, if you know, chasing audio, there's no video reference. It's like, hang on, what was that? Was that? You have to, have to sharp mind and stay in there and knock it out. But I'm meticulous about it. You want to add on to that? You're, I know you're an editor extraordinaire, <laughs> so you get it. But Yeah, uh, I think that was it. I just, okay. just curious It's very different. Although that skill set definitely bled into this. It gave me the confidence like, well, audio, but it's different. And the video version, I should say, the YouTube one where I'm less picky. I mean, if there's a long pause on an audio version, you're like, is that my own pause? So you have no visual. So I'll shorten those breaks. I want to make it the best it can be for the listener. Where the video one, if we're on YouTube and someone's like, what was that? And they're sitting there, at least you could see them. And you, you could just go with it. So I'm a lot less picky about that. And it's also the audios, the audio that comes with Riverside. It's not as good as our audio. So I let that kind of, it's its other version. Anything else? 
Um, I just wanted to ask you for both the documentary and also the podcast, what are some um, considerations, like some basic, uh, well, I shouldn't say basic, but like, um, you know, if you're on a budget, what kinds of camera and podcast equipment um, items do you recommend? Well, yeah, the new iPhone 14 Pro, it's incredible. Yeah. That's I mean, a great camera. I, now there's a 15 out, but I mean, they are. I, this is the only funny camera I have now because over time I would sell off the old gear. It gets old. Three-year-old camera gets old. Podcasting, though, I got to tell you, I love this. It's actually called a Zoom, but not connected to Zoom meetings, but it's a Zoom, Z-O-O-M, H6. There's a lot of them. I love this guy, and it's not that expensive couple hundred, 300 bucks. Yeah, 300 bucks. There's even another version that's smaller, like a hundred dollar version, but Zoom is like, they're my favorite personal, I have like three of these. And this is a professional audio recording device. Yeah. So the next layer of past this is getting a piece like this for audio to record audio and yeah. then a camera. Usually a lot of people now are using DSLR cameras, which the beauty of a DSLR camera is you can put a different lens on it so you can get a lot of different looks to it. And as you grow as a filmmaker, you realize the imagery is all about the glass, you know, that you put in front of it. I mean, it, it matters, you know, how the visuals look and it really impacts the story you want to tell. And then you're getting a little bit bigger. And that's usually when it's better find somebody else that owns the equipment, that knows how to use the equipment. Don't invest in it. Bring them on board because they're going to be a collaborator you, for you and they're going to help you grow. So to me, I kind of see it like that, unless you yeah. really feel like you want to just spend the money, but I see a lot of people buying cameras, spending $5,000, and the camera's way overkill for what they need. Yeah, you know, Even so. an iPhone has a good recording feature for audio, just to test it. If you're, already, if you're just at that stage, you could get a mic, plug it in, and just test. Zoom has a small one that you can adapt into an iPhone. And I like Sure microphones. These... I'm more used in the field. They're $100. If something happened, not the end of the world. My studio one's like four or $500, a higher insurer. I prefer them, love them, count on them. They're so reliable. And a cloud lifter, you gotta have a cloud lifter. But I could go on all day. And, and documentary equipment, well, that's, yeah. Yeah, and, and you know what I would say, you know what the, the best Vast. answer to your question is find other documentary filmmakers that are here, ask them what they're using. And just keep notes on that. And, you know, and you'll see that common ground of certain cameras. You know, a lot of people, this DSLR, you know, they'll pick a Sony versus the Canon or versus, a, you know, various cameras. But, you know, you just ask the questions why. And a lot of it is sometimes even borrowing it with them, seeing, getting to understand what the, the lenses can do. But Question. Go ahead. Yes. How can we get on your podcast? So I try to make it easy because now I have like five shows and growing and it's like, oh, go here, go here. They're on every single platform, which is great. But I also just tell people to go to justcuriousmedia.com because this is a way to hit them all and then learn those links. Like if you go here and click like Let's Talk Cobra Kai and you hit on this button right here, audio platforms, audio platforms is going to take you to this page. You could stream them all here. Or click on any of your preferred ones, Spotify. There, it's on all of them. How, how do I get to be a guest on your Oh, oh, a guest. Well, contact me through here. Or I'll give you my email. And yeah, we will see if you would fit it. So a lot of them I don't have guests on. Let's talk movies. I do have guests on. So. Oh, yeah, okay. Well, then, yeah, then we have to loop in my partner, Shireen. And we, yeah, we, absolutely. Well, we'll talk after. And I want to bring up something because you were talking about monetization and something I also love about podcasting in general is the fact that 
it's really evergreen content, meaning I've seen shows like six episodes. You start to get into 50, 60, 100, you have more people. They're not just starting at the, you know, right where they came in. They go back and do deep dives and listen to everything to catch up. So your numbers are constantly like growing because it's, if, you, if you're not making dated content, I'm not doing the news and it's so outdated. It's like, ah, these things are going to hold up. And I've seen this happen constantly, which is amazing. And again, make it entertaining, make them want to go backwards. Not like, well, your first 20 episodes sounded like crap. And no, that's not the point. But so that helps us in the long run, you know, get new fans that will just lift the whole thing up. Ever interesting and ever growing. You can't do enough. I have this board at home, this huge whiteboard. It's like I'm doing this show. It's also a lifestyle, so it's not like I'm just beholden to it. It's like you get a flow. I go in my booth. I mean, it's soundproof. I can't hear the outside world, and I'm focused. And we'll do like three or four episodes with breaks, like chunk time, and then I'm scheduling like two months in advance. Like I've got eight. That's a crimes. You know, and, I, and if something new happens, you can always move one up. No one's controlling it. I feel like I run a newspaper or a magazine. Oh, that's a hot story. Let's move it up. But you've got to put in the time. You've got to have that infrastructure, that schedule. It's essential. Because I didn't used to have one. I was like kind of winging it with one show. You start doing multiple shows. It's like, and also, if you disappear for a month, because I moved cross country and everything went dark for a little while, like a month or two, it sucks, but your traction kind of just stops. I mean, some of it continues, but it slows down. Like, oh, where's that new episode? Fans start contacting you. Hey, what's happening? So you got to let them know you're taking a break. You have to be engaged with your fans because that's a huge thing. Yeah. Right, right. Getting them's hard enough. Retaining them is what you want. Anything else as we, Emma? You know, I was against it at first, but then I made it. So we do, this is Peter Filardi, awesome in his uh, house. So here we are on Zoom. And I don't know what I'm doing there. I, was a, I didn't pick that screenshot. Hey, everybody. So, but I started doing this because I figured I would cater to people that watch podcasts. I don't. I'd rather just be passive and do stuff around the house or go to the gym. So it's funny how it's different numbers. It's a different audience, but you have to promote it there. And now Apple is allowing you to do video and Spotify. So we're going to probably explore all of those avenues. Wherever you can listen to them or see them, we need to be. Since I have the content, I have the video file edited. I have the audio file. So it's a component for sure, you know. But I'm not some YouTuber with millions. I'm building it from, you know, our numbers on here are way smaller than our podcast numbers, the audio numbers. And I just want to ask too, it's, it's kind of like when you're doing these too, these are really plain videos. You're not, are you going back to the YouTubes and, and decorating them with, with no. shots of the posters or the... No, but I have an iPad behind, this is like, so I have something behind me that I can play things in real time. There's always a logo, like this is a dog that I was referencing uh, and dog on. Yeah, so it's, it does simplify things. You can see it, like there's, we're on That's a Crime. I just do it in real time. So yeah, we're not going back into post and creating new, until there's like real funds coming in, a lot more. Yeah, we could dress it up. There's a reason to. But streamline it. It's about content. I'm a perfectionist, so I've had to kind of battle that inner perfectionism and content, you know, and learn. Like, and I have also become better. You do something several hundred times, you're better. I keep thinking, when I do a thousand episodes, look out. That's my number. 
also you have a lot more fans so anyway but that's yeah what's going on i know i don't want to go over because there's another yeah, thing coming close here to ending time is there any other questions otherwise feel last free. question talk to jason afterwards yeah i'll go out in the hallway of a new group coming in here i want to thank you guys all for coming out really this has been an honor uh, yeah to talk thank to you, you guys thank you alec and this will be hopefully a podcast maybe just samples i don't know how we're going to use it it's two hours of a lot but uh but you were here and i appreciate that and enjoy the rest of the mystic film festival